Welcome to episode 3 of our series, There Is No Planet B, which has been inspired by COP26 taking place in Glasgow this week. In this episode, presenter Marlene Halliday concludes her conversation with Commonweal's Head of Strategic Development, Robin McAlpine. If you missed episodes 1 and 2, they are available on podcast and on our YouTube channel. I'm Marlene Halliday. Welcome to There's No Planet B, our series of conversations during COP26. And this is part three of my conversation with Robin McAlpine, who is Head of Strategic Development at the Commonweal Think Tank. One of our watchers on the, the original live stream of this conversation posted a question for Robin, asking, what were the top three things that could improve public transport in Scotland. And Robin starts with a pretty pragmatic description of how to develop a properly integrated public transport system in Scotland. But then he develops that saying, but look, the future of public transport may be very different to how it is now. It's not just necessarily how it is now with some small changes. If it's going to be very radically different, we need to be able to tackle what he describes as two erroneous ways of thinking. So the first erroneous way of thinking is to think that the future will be exactly like the present, but with some exchanges, some swaps, some tweaks. So we'll use plastic, but it will be bioplastic. We'll carry on using internal combustion engine in cars and we'll all have a car, but we'll use biofuel. He says, no, look, the future needs to be much more radically different if we're going to stop climate breakdown. But that gets them to the other erroneous way of thinking, which is to think that the future will somehow have to be a return to the past in, in a sort of sacrificial way. Robin's whole way of thinking is there doesn't need to be sacrifice. It doesn't need to be about going back to the past. But all of that led us to another question which was posted on the live stream and that was what about developing countries who quite understandably want the same level of development as we enjoy now? The answer for Robin, well, again, the future is not about sacrifice. It's not somehow about having to go back to the past. Developing countries are not going to somehow lose out because we've used up all the resources. In fact, they will have something better than the present way of doing things. They and we can move to a future which doesn't destroy climate, doesn't throw away resources, looks after biodiversity and looks after each other. So here is part three of our conversation with Robin McAlpine, Head of Strategic Development at Commonweal. If I go through all the work we did in our in the in the common home plan and our Green New Deal, the hardest to get agreement on was food. The hardest to know where we were going was transport. Well, with food, everyone's got their own take on it. So you try and get a small agro producer and a vegan to agree on anything. They don't. So the small agro producer thinks that big bulk planting that comes from producing a lot of soya and these sorts of things. Uh, is a mistake, and it is, because that's monocrops. 
but that's kind of how the current approach to veganism is heavily reliant on these. So mm -hmm. it's it's good for carbon, but it's bad for biodiversity, and it's also bad for the soil. So it's tricky to get everybody to agree in food, but in transport, I spoke to a lot of people and nobody was persuasively saying this is what it's going to look like. I just went and followed through the logic, which is what are the technologies telling us? And the technologies are telling us that highly efficient, smaller vehicles that are geared to the person and which don't sit idle. Remember, cars are idle 95% of their life. Um, and which don't sit idle, is more efficient in all sorts of ways and solves a bunch of other problems. I think that's what's going to happen, but that's me making predictions and I wouldn't throw a lot of money at it yet. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that don't own a car. A friend of mine who's a smart energy systems, transport systems kind of expert, works in that field. She would, I think, agree with quite a lot of what you've just said. And she says it to me and I go, yeah, but I like driving. But I want to drive myself. Well, yeah, I quite it, like, I quite like yeah. oil and gas. Burning oil and gas is fun. <laughs> yeah, makes, okay. Makes fair big enough. flames no, and belches. We've gone so hard in our house on getting rid of plastic. I mean, really hard. We've, I mean, there's really not an awful lot of plastic that we go through now. And it was one of the, my revelations was it's not as hard as you think. But I tell you what, I miss cling film. Cling film is unrecyclable. <laughs> and... Honestly, there's nothing that works quite like cling film. We've tried some of the organic stuff and it's okay. But I really like cling film, but I don't use it. We have had a roll of cling film. I think it must now be about two years, three years old. And if I use some, I reuse it. Val's in the chat here saying cling film, yeah. never use it. To which I see... Never right, use it, yeah. Yeah, to which I see, <laughs> when, when you're chilling your shortcut crust pastry in the fridge, what are you doing it in? Yeah, what do you do with it then? I know it's true. What do you do? You yeah. can't use wax wraps. It doesn't work. You know, Even something like tinfoil, which is not as bad as cling film, doesn't really work. So. But we've got another, at least one comment that driverless cars sound fab and thinks there's a, another thing at Eastern is we need bigger cycle lanes, actually. That's true. The ones that we've just mm -hmm. put in around. Here's another point. And this is, I'm going to use this to make a more general point which is we've got to find an accommodation somewhere between two erroneous pieces of thinking, right? So one of them is that the future will be exactly like the present, but with exchanges. So, you know, we'll use bioplastic rather than plastic. Yeah. No, it won't because things need to change and things will have to change. We need to consume less. There's no, the rate at which we consume and throw away in the West. There's no version of it that's acceptable. We can't do that. We need to do things slightly differently. So it's not going to be the present, but with one-for-one -one swaps, ins and outs. Some of it will be, but a lot of it won't. But the other thing is, it's not going to be the past in the future. So it's not sacrifice. We're not going to go back to yeah, knitting yeah. our own clothes or hunter gathering our own shoes. It's not that sacrificial past either. One of the things that's stressingly sad about humans is we're actually pretty bad at imagining futures which are different than the present. And we always think of the future as a version of the present. You know, it's the present, but... Now, let's pick that up. I want to show what that means in the question of cycle lanes and transport. So we can make cycle lanes wider, or we can take cars off roads and let the, cycles, let the bikes have the whole roads. One of the things about driverless is you get a hell of a lot more traffic, a hell of a lot more people, up the same space. So if you think about me driving my old Vauxhall Astra doing 
George Street and how much space there needs to be. Think about how far apart the cars are. And think about how big my car is for me being in it. So it's just me. And it, you know, it's the whole Astra. Now, think about that again if it was being organized by a sentient being, which is to say, you know, a, a, a computer-controlled driver system. In the space that my Astra takes place, you could possibly have six pod cars traveling. So what that means is that you think about how much you can shift people up artery roads if we were doing it efficiently like that. Now, what I always think is that if you did that, you would have an artery road, which was, and for those that don't know Edinburgh, apologies, but you might have Queen Street being a car road, which means that George Street could be a bike road and a walking well, road. Well, I'd pedestrianise it all together. Yeah. And then, I, well, I would personally, maybe pedestrianise all that together. And then Princess Street, if you allow, so again, for those that don't know, uh, if anyone doesn't know, Queen Street, George Street and Princess Street all run parallel to each other. And something like um, Frederick Street runs up through them. So if you said, right, you can go down Queen Street and you can turn up Frederick Street and then get dropped off at a drop-off point on George Street, well, you've just got to accept that you've got to walk one block if you want to go to Princess Street. That's fine. It's a pedestrianised. It's all really nice. So once you get down to Princess Street, to make a, a generous cycle lane, you could still have great big wide street yeah, cafes. Yeah. You could still have a massive pavement with space. You could have a cycle lane and an electric scooter lane if we had the weather. We've got to stop imagining that what we're doing is taking one for one off the road and replacing with something else. And if you stop and you think how, where this takes you, if you start to think, right, let's not solve the problem by doing the same thing in a different way. Let's solve the problem by doing something different. So for a kickoff, we've already seen the homework and can work. What have we gone into Edinburgh for in the first place? The offence, Edinburgh. What are we all funneling in and out in Edinburgh for when we create disaggregated homeworking? 20 years ago, I wrote a policy paper on this. And I'm quite chuffed with myself because I just read in the paper the day that someone said, we should really do this. I said, ah, I suggested that 25 years ago, which is being alone is isolating, but there's no reason why you couldn't have a co-working space at the bottom of your street so that you can go down and you can be with other people, and you can all be working, you can have chat over the coffee and all that, you just all happen to be working for a completely different business. Your business yeah, rates, yeah, rates yeah, a desk yeah. from a co-working space, you get a five-minute walk to work in the morning, someone else heats the place, someone else pays for the electricity, somebody else deals with all the logistical, all the problems with it, you've got colleagues there, you've got company, you can go for coffees, you can have all the social element of it, but you're not commuting. So suddenly you've taken so much pressure off the streets, which means that suddenly streets can be free for bikes, free for pedestrians, free to walk down. And when you start thinking like this, you start thinking, right, well, wait a minute. What if it isn't the present but with wind turbines? What if it's something a bit different? And you start to see, well, cities were designed for a specific reason. Now, if you look at the, def the derivation of cities, cities occurred first of all, when you needed to have trade, when you had to have large yeah. volumes trade. Now, we don't really do that kind of trade in cities anymore. That, that doesn't really happen in cities. Um, you know, import-export doesn't go through fairness like it used to. It, it's, it's done in big processing plants. Then the thing about cities where they were brilliant for assembling yeah. mass groups of labour. Yeah, so when you had the yeah. factory era and you needed not a, you know, not a blacksmith with 
two people, but a factory with 500 people, cities were great. But an enormous amount of that has been automated now. How many factories have we got 500 people in Scotland? Mm -hmm. So the need to assume that we are organising everything around the old city and periphery model, I mean, it's all, you can see it happening already. That's already changing. So what I'd really strongly argue here is that all of these problems, it's not about making cycle lanes 20 centimetres wider. It's about rethinking our cities. It's about rethinking our towns. It's about rethinking our road networks. It's about rethinking what we want from life. Yeah. It's not about building an extra lane in a motorway so we can get everybody in. It's not. It's about using it more efficiently, reducing the burden and the resources that we are using and doing things in a different way. It's not about assuming that whatever we do with food, it can never, ever get more expensive. It's about saying it needs to get more expensive. Food needs to become more expensive because the, the cheap food is produced in a way it's cheap because it's extremely damaging. And it doesn't produce external, you know, we, do, we don't capture the externalities in the price. Um, it needs to be different than that. So what would, it, what would a food system that's good for us look like? And then what does a wage system that makes us able to have that food system look like? We need to change more than the, what we're carrying in our hand. We need to change our assumptions about yeah. what we're doing. One of my board members is um, Malcolm Fraser, the architect, and he was really interested. And what we say is you can pretty well tell every era by its town planning. So if you look at my little town, again, bigger, we've got a giant big wide high street. Why? Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. because it was a mar that was the market. That's a market town. That's what yeah. it was originally there for. That was the market. That was where everyone brought their cows and their horses and whatever and their, and their goods in for yeah. sale with the yeah. corn exchange. Right. And then we, before that, we're organised in straight lines. So, you know, the high street is basically straight lines, but there are straight lines going back behind it. Well, that was the run rig system. What is now our high street where cottages with a run rig behind them from the feudal era? So you can see in the town it was feudal and then it was mercantile. And then you, it was suddenly Victorian civic where the the big push was public amenity. So we've got a municipal hall and we've got a, you know, a Victorian primary school for suddenly collective education. And that was the structure of the Victorian era. And then you got the era that we are still exiting which was the era of the car when everything was changed for the purposes of fast transport fast travel and you can look at the way that you know what was a wide market town is now bigger we've now driven up the a702 yeah. right through the middle of it. it's a it's a trunk road goes yeah. right through the middle of the wee town yeah, and that's a lots, function of the lots cars and lots of parking spaces in the in that wide high street i well we've got because because you because that's how it works that's yeah, what you do you need parking and you need yeah. We are exiting that era. We are leaving the era when all physical public space is planned and organised around cars and we're moving into something else. We have to get a grip of that and shape what something else is. Yeah, That's what we need to do. We need to re-envisage the future, not as a version of the present and not as some sort of sacrificial return to... The, the olden days of knitting and, you know, of, of, of uh, you know, not having things, not doing things, you know, yeah, yeah. it's different. The future will not be either of these. 
we have to decide what it is. And we've got to decide what it is collectively, democratically, discuss it, debate it, and get on with it. And to come back to one of the things I was saying earlier on, that means we need to discuss it. It cannot be a conversation between policymakers and big corporate interests. We need this discussion. We need to be asked, is it really air source heat pumps you want if I told you that you can have district heating for about the same price? but it's so much cheaper to run, it's so much more efficient, it's so much less ugly in your house. Yep. If people were given the choice, I believe that's what they would choose. We need to have the public debate in this. It must be a democratic future that fixes this, not well, one see, that we're sold. There's another question that's um, that's been asked, which is the one about, look at what get referred to as developing countries, their carbon footprint's pretty low because, you know, maybe it's not a very, you know, developed economy. How do we persuade that sort of group of people to not just be able to go, well, we want what you've got. We want what you've got in Scotland or we want what you've got in London or New York. But it struck me that what you're saying about the future doesn't need to be, it's not the past, but it's also not the present plus or minus things. Is that a way of having starting off that conversation? I, I want the developing world not only to want, but to have what we have. It's just that I want what we have to be painless for our environment. Yeah. So I want them to have a circular economy with high quality goods and services which are constantly reused and which don't create waste. I want them to have bountiful, bountiful energy for either heating or cooling or whatever they need it for. I want them to have that. I want it to be clean. So what I want is for us to be what we should be, and then I want them to have that too. What I don't want is for us to have what we've got and for them to have what they've got. So to give you a, give you a wee kind of an, uh, an example um, about what I mean with this. See if you move to a circular economy, so you're not throwing things out, you're not really producing waste, countries can become surprisingly self-sufficient. So if you think about the Western economic model, it's kind of like, well, it is kind of like a bottomless pit, right? So we get something, we use it, we throw it out, we need to get another one. So we can throw that out indefinitely. Now, what that means is we need a, an insane amount of stuff to make us happy, right? So we need so much stuff to make us happy because once it's made us happy for 10 minutes, we chuck it out. Um, and the fast fashion is the worst example of this. I cry when I look at the amount of polycotton that we throw out in, a, in an average day. I mean, it's terrifying. Not only do we throw it away, or, you know, after not very much, but it gets it gets made the other side of the planet. Oh, I know, it's all crazy. It's all, it's yeah. all nuts. I mean, I, I'd love to talk about design, local design global manufacture local, um, which is a, a, the possibility that technologies become more automated. And so you can basically make anything with 3D printers or similar processes wherever you are. So you can get an iPhone, you know, we're not there obviously, but you can just get an iPhone printed from scratch to finish in one piece. You know, this is the future that that, that mm. people think may come. This is not my lifetime, um, but uh, that, that level of complexity. But certainly at the moment, 
something that currently you would get made in uh, injection molding in Indonesia, plastic injection molding in Indonesia, put onto a, into a box, into a ferry, into a container unit, onto a ferry, brought over here, belching carbon, taken out. You can just get that 3D printed yeah. here. You know, that, that, yeah. that's the, the sorts of things that we can do. But the main point is, so imagine if the bottomless hole of Western consumption, imagine if it wasn't bottomless. In fact, imagine if it wasn't a hole. Now, just stop and think. Imagine everything you've chucked out. Think about all the things you've chucked out. Imagine if you hadn't. Imagine you donated that to a developing country and it was still every bit as good as it was. So every single disposal, I'm going to pick disposable razor, right? Because it just popped in my head. Imagine if every single disposable razor you'd thrown out, you hadn't thrown out, but you gave it to somebody else. The developing world would have all everything we've got now. So what happens if we make reusable razors like we used to, stop chucking them out? Well, suddenly there is the, the world's resources enable the production of enough goods that the developing world can have them, as long as they don't chuck them out. So what we're saying is the developing world struggles because, frankly, what happens is the model is we take all their mineral resources, sometimes we make them process them because it's a dirty job, we take all their mineral resources and then manufacture them into things which we then use and throw away. It's not, it's not that we didn't have the material, their mineral resources. It's that we, we stole them and threw them out and then threw it away. If we, didn't, if we didn't throw them away, we wouldn't need to steal them. So, for example, you can, you know, there's all this worry that people have got about, oh, but the batteries inside a, an electric car, they use all these precious minerals. To which I say, well, yes, they do, but the minerals are still there when the battery runs out of charge. So all you do is recycle the battery. So once you've got all the batteries you need. You keep recycling them. You just keep recycling them. That's the point of a a circular economy. And so the developing world could finally develop because we'd stop stealing their stuff because we wouldn't have to. We steal their stuff because we throw it down a bottomless pit. If we stop throwing the stuff down a bottomless pit, we wouldn't need to steal their stuff. That's It's kind of that simple. And so... This is the point. What happens when the developing world demands what we've got? Let's give them it. Let's give them it. But let's give them it because we're using what we stole from them sensibly. We've shepherded our resources so that we don't have to keep stealing stuff from them. And then we can start selling them stuff. Better still, they can start making it for themselves. Making it for themselves, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And, and we yeah. wouldn't have to. So... I'm not suggesting that we move down to some sort of uh, post-civilization where we don't trade between nations. We will trade between nations. Scotland does not have big copper reserves. But the point is that the only reason we need such big copper reserves at the moment is because we chuck all our copper out. I mean, every time you chuck out anything electrical, you're chucking out another load of copper. All we've got to do is recycle it, keep it. Next load of copper we've got is already here. So this is the point. The earth, everybody who says... The Earth lacks resources. I want you. Know, we haven't got enough resources for the planet. We need to mine space. Bollocks. We have plenty of resources. We just use them in a way which future generations will look back and say, "What was wrong with those people?" You know that we chuck kilos of gold in a way in a landfill. Trace amounts of gold are in all sorts of electrical goods. 
And you, it was just lob them in a bin. If you went well, there, it's expen It's because it's expensive. I mean, it's not that we're chucking an ingot of gold away. No one's doing that. But if we're, you're chucking away bits and pieces and little bits and pieces, it's expensive to reclaim that. That's why it gets done, doesn't it? Well, it's more expensive. It's thought to be expensive, actually, as you say. It's, it's, well, it depends um, what you measure. Chucking resources away. Yeah, it does depend. Well, it depends what you measure. What you measure. Yeah. In comparison to the war that we're about to start with China over getting access to the resources in the first place, or in comparison to the massive expenditure we're now going to have to make to get the carbon back yeah. out of the atmosphere, yeah. or in comparison to the amount of money that we spend alleviating poverty around the world because we keep stealing resources, in comparison to what? Gold, yeah. Recycling gold out of a, an item is only non-economical because of the way that we treat resources in the first place, the way we treat the implication of resources in the first place. Actually, Producing gold all the way to any any mineral all the way to the point that it's in your house um, is massively expensive and, and time consuming. Fact is that the way that we do it, we do it with cheap labour and we ignore all the all the other costs. You know, the the, the mitigation of the pollution, the 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 implication of the climate change. I mean, I don't know how much Scotland spent sandbags in the last couple of days. For the deluge, but every penny of well, a lot of that money is that's the cost of climate change. Yeah. If you've if your house was flooded, um, and you've got to get the decorators, you're going to get you may have to get builders in to put heat in to, to get the, yeah. the joists and your floor joists in. If that's happening to you just now, yeah, that's that's how much it costs to recycle stuff out of phones because that's why that's the price you're paying for it. So the yeah. question is, do we want to give ourselves a firm shake? and stop pretending that anything's for free or cheap. It's not. We pay for everything. And we are doing crazy things. So I am not in any way despondent. I do wonder whether there are too many humans. I, I really do. Um, and by far the best bet for dealing with that is education. Whenever you yeah. educate women, the population growth yeah. declines and reverses. Declines. Yeah. And we should, because there's too many of us. But best I can understand from anything that I've looked at, we do have enough resource for everybody in the world to live a decent life. And it's its allocation that's the problem, not the existence of the resource. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's time we started digging up some of these landfills and getting out the stuff we've already and put getting in the stuff there. that's in there, yeah. But seriously, all that's the, going to be... All the copper, yeah. That is, that is going to be an industry of the future. Urban mining <laughs> is going to be an industry of the future where we go back through our landfill but we take back out all the stuff we should never have thrown out in the first place. And that, that, um, that, that sounds just slightly reminiscent of, you know, a, a dystopian sci-fi movie, actually, uh, Robin. But, you know, I, I, on the other hand, it isn't really, actually, it would be a sensible thing to do. You should, go and look, you should go and look at a copper mine. That is a dystopian sci-fi present. Honestly, if you were tell, you can go to a Western landfill and start reprocessing the wasted materials in it, or you can go and work in a copper mine. I promise you, you would take the yeah, Western yeah. landfill. Oh, right, yeah. You, when you're wandering around the, the green zone in, in the COP26, I just hope you have as many interesting points to make and chats to have with the folk that that, that, that you meet over there. And I mean, I I, um, I was saying at the beginning, you know, like how I feel about the stuff and I'm kind of still not that optimistic about COP26 being what, it, what we really need it to be. But actually, you know, some of the things that you've touched on, I mean, in particular, that uh, coalition of the willing, I just, 
that that when I start thinking about in that kind of way, that leaves me feeling a bit more uplifted, a bit because I think that's possible. We yeah. are a pragmatic nation state. One of the reasons why, if I have this confidence in Scotland's ability to do it, is that we're quite low in the bullshit in this country, and we're quite high on the well, hit it with a hammer. Then, if it needs it, hit it with a hammer. <laughs> um, right? <laughs> we were one of the great engineering nations in the world because we had the pragmatic ability to say, right, stop greeting everybody. Let's fix it. So that's what we did. We fixed it. We built it. We made it. We created it. And that's the solution to this again. When we started that common home plan, at the outset of it, with the challenge we set ourselves, all Scotland's environmental harm of any sort reduced, no matter where that harm takes place anywhere in the globe. We didn't even know. I didn't know if that was possible. I didn't know if that was, if we were going to come out of the project discovering it couldn't be done. And we came out of the project and basically it can be done. And I'm like, way, thank the Lord, right? From that point onwards, I have the optimism of knowledge, but the pessimism of observation, which is to say, I know we can fix this. I also observe that we're not doing the things that would fix this. So it is now a race between human ingenuity and human stupidity. And by ingenuity, I don't mean innovation. I can only say this again. We can fix 90% of the problems with old technology. We've just got to have the ingenuity to get on with it. That's why I don't feel so much grief as anger and despair. Because grief would have been if my mum never got me those lemons, right? Anger is when it's all dripped all over the floor. Despair <laughs> is watching it drip all over the floor. I don't have grief yet. Because it's not over yet. It's not finished yet. A chance of a future for my kids is not dead. I don't have to grieve yet. But I am despairing that a future for my kids is going to be kicked down the road. The can's going to be kicked further down the road at COP, I strongly suspect. And anger. Because the people who are going to kick it down the road are in my category. Wealthy Westerners. But when I say wealthy, let's be clear here, but um, comparatively wealthy Westerners who've only got 30 odd years left, you know? For us, yeah, great. Let's just let's just keep kidding on that it's all fine. Because we'll be dead by the time that <laughs> the climate Nuremberg trials come, at which we're all condemned for by history for being the generation that knew oh. but didn't do anything. And that's what gets me. What gets me is looking at the smugness of the people who are not acting, who always tell you, oh, it's just that little bit more complicated than you ordinary people understand. It's just a little bit more involved. It's not as easy as that. It's got... Stop. Stop now. Stop talking down to us. Stop telling us this crap. It really is very easy. We do it or we die. So are we going to do it or are we not? That's yeah, it. yeah. Let's fix it then. Get it thanks done. very much again Robin Thanks. thanks for coming and if anyone wants to catch up later on they'll be able to do that from um, from our Facebook page and uh, yeah thanks again <laughs> always a pleasure to be an indie life There Is No Planet B is brought to you by Indie Life Media Productions the presenter is Marlene Halliday the podcast was produced and edited by Fiona McGregor and the music is Freedom by Scott Buckley. Join us again next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>